Well, good evening. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The last several weeks, uh, we've been looking at a major theme that drives how we understand God and His relation to His world. We've been looking at the theme of covenant. We've seen week after week how despite man's disobedience, God comes in and makes covenant with and gracious promises to Adam, to Noah, to Abram, to Moses, and to David. And then last week, we concluded with how Jesus was the fulfillment of all those promises and how in Christ, God reveals himself to be both promise maker and promise keeper. Our prayer for you is that over time, this same approach to reading God's word we have taken week in and week out would begin to form you and fill you with a sense of awe at this God of ours. One of the most joyful things we experience as pastors is whenever we see these realities taking root in your lives and you begin to see how all of the scriptures in the Old Testament and in the New Testament point to how Christ is the source, means, and end of all things. And we rejoice when we see Him taking His proper lordship in your lives. Sometimes though, We can spend so much time rejoicing that the veil has been removed for us to see Jesus everywhere that we don't stop to think, how did that veil get removed? How do we know this promise-making, promise-keeping God? How do we see Jesus everywhere? I think we all know the answer, kind of like we know The presence of our middle child. We know that they're there just to kind of make sure that they're there. We know that the answer is that the Holy Spirit removes the veil. We know that the Holy Spirit forms us and fills us with the knowledge of God. And the Holy Spirit enables us to live out the Lordship of Christ in our lives. But what we don't often spend time doing is thinking about how precious a reality this is, how glorious the Spirit of God among us really is. And so tonight on Pentecost Sunday, no less, we are going to hear a sort of a postlude to our series on covenants by looking at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So if you're willing and able, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's holy word from Ezekiel chapter 36. We are only going to read selected verses uh, and they're printed there for you in your worship order. So feel free to follow along or just listen if you like. We're going to go through verse 29. Hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name 
which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. That is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of His word. And may He grant us all the grace to trust and obey it. Please be seated. As we said, tonight we are going to take a look at the person and work of the Holy Spirit, but we're going to do it in a way that honors Him. We are going to follow the pattern with which He follows when speaking about Himself. The Spirit of God doesn't make a habit of continually drawing extended um, reflection and extended attention to Himself. And any place that professes to put the Holy Spirit at the front and center of everything they do is one you should be cautious of because that's not how the Holy Spirit Himself acts. The careful observer will see that in the Word of God, breathed out by the Spirit of God, He is very rarely, if ever, the centerpiece of what's going on. Instead, the Holy Spirit is woven, so woven throughout God's Word that His glory is on display everywhere. And this didn't begin at Pentecost. If you're not familiar with the Holy Spirit's approach, you might see the Scripture reading coming from Ezekiel and wonder, how are we going to look at Ezekiel 36 to draw out the person and work of the Holy Spirit? Isn't that the Old Covenant? Well, yes, it is. But we're looking at Ezekiel for our covenant postlude because some have said when speaking of the prophets that Jeremiah is the prophet of the Father, Isaiah is the prophet of the Son, and Ezekiel is the prophet of the Holy Spirit. Now, while this may be an oversimplification, it's not too far off. Ezekiel is prophesying to God's people who are in exile. They knew and they believed much of what we've looked at the past several weeks, but they spit in the face of God's grace, and thus he handed them over to their enemies. Ezekiel's audience knew that they were recipients of grace, and yet their response to that grace is what's brought them to this place of judgment. They knew the pattern that we've heard over and over again is their family story. God graciously 
continues to bring life. God graciously continues to bring fullness. And how do his people respond? Well, they respond by bringing death. They respond by bringing brokenness and emptiness to everything he's created. He's covered them. He's delivered them. He sustained them and He's graciously ruled over them. But after each gracious response of God, His people fall back into the same sins. Covenant after covenant, gracious response after gracious response, and here they are again. Dirty, rotten, law-breaking scoundrels. Ezekiel declares To God's people that they have not only brought shame upon themselves, which is bad enough. But what's worse, because of their utter and repeated rebellion, they have made a mockery of God's name in the nations in which they dwell. And so it was for this reason that God was fed up and God was going to act. He made a promise. But what's he going to do? Is God going to finally abandon them to the wiles of the serpent? Is God going to destroy them? Not in a flood, perhaps, but maybe in some other way. Is God going to choose a new patriarch for them or give them more rules or introduce them to a new king who is just the same as the old king? No, Ezekiel confirms what you've heard every week. God's people couldn't and wouldn't uphold their end of the covenant. So God himself must come to do so. Not only in the incarnation of God the Son, but in the outpouring of God the Spirit. You've heard week after week that God himself became the last Adam. God himself was destroyed in the flood of judgment. God himself took on the form of a servant, was led through the wilderness and kept All of God's laws. And yet still God himself was treated like a lawbreaker. You know, though, that God defeated death. You know that God rose from the dead and you know that God is seated on his throne even now. And yet I want to posit to you that if all that happened. And that was all that had happened we would not be much better off than our forefathers before us. The incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus are all historical realities with eternal significance. But they only have eternal significance if this portion of Ezekiel's prophecy comes true. Even if Jesus was who he says he was and did what what the gospel writers said he did. And yet God did not do what he promised in Ezekiel 36. You and I would have no hope. If that sounds extreme to us, it may be because we do not realize how essential the person and work of the Holy Spirit is. Not only to the person of God himself, but to our lives as born-again Christians. Yes, God's name was vindicated at the cross. But in Ezekiel, God promised to do more than just vindicate His holy name. He promised to send His Holy Spirit. Now imagine if 
I were in exile with Ezekiel's audience, I would have questions, much like some of the questions we see today. And so we're going to handle three of those questions. We're going to answer, who is the Holy Spirit? We're going to answer, who is the Holy Spirit for? And then finally, we're going to see, what does this Holy Spirit do? So our first question, who is the Holy Spirit? Now, that question is worded that way on purpose. We could say, what is the Holy Spirit? But that would not be an appropriate question. Some of you may have noticed that in our confession of faith recently, we've gone from asking, Christian, what do you believe? To Christian, in whom do you believe? This isn't an accident. God the Father is not a what God the Son is not a what. They are persons. And as such, it would be weird to say, what do you believe? And respond, I believe in God the Father. Now, the appropriate response to that question would be, I believe that God is Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That Jesus Christ is his only son, our Lord, and so forth. But those are only affirming doctrinal truth. And doctrinal truth alone will save no one. So we ask Christian, in whom do you believe? And our hope is that you respond with Faith in whom alone lies salvation. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. So when we ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit? We're including in the question the reality that the Holy Spirit is a personal being. He's not an impersonal force like gravity. Jesus says in John 15 that when another helper of the same kind comes, whom Jesus sends from the Father, the Spirit of truth, He will testify about Jesus. In John 16, Jesus says that when the Spirit of truth has come, He will guide the apostles in all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but he will speak only what he has heard. Luke says that it was the person of the Holy Spirit who set apart Barnabas and Saul. Paul says to the Ephesian elders that the Holy Spirit is who made them overseers to care for the church of God. Later, Paul writes to the Ephesian church that they are not to grieve the person of the Holy Spirit who sealed them for the day of redemption. Paul's echoing Isaiah who said, God's people of old rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit who then turned to be their enemy and fought against them. Later in Romans 8, as you heard in our scripture reading, Paul says that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit helps us in our time of weakness. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we are too weak to pray. An impersonal it cannot testify, cannot hear or speak or set apart or experience grief. An it 
cannot fight for you or seal you or pray for you. But a person can. So the Holy Spirit is a personal being at the very least. But He is also a divine being. You and I are beings. And although we are made in Imago Dei, in the image of God, and thus we are spiritual beings, we are not even close to being Spiritus Dei. The Holy Spirit. Ezekiel does not say that God will just send any spirit. Ezekiel says God will send His Spirit. Genesis 1-2 says that it was the Spirit of God who was hovering over the waters in creation. We all know that we are made and that God said, let us make man in our image. And thus we are spiritual beings. Job confesses rightly that it was the Spirit of God who made him. The writer to the Hebrews says that the Spirit is the eternal Spirit. And only God is eternal. Jesus then says anyone who speaks against him will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Those are strong words. If God alone is to be worshipped, then only blasphemy can be against God Himself. And if forgiveness is offered to even those who blaspheme the name of the Son of God, how inescapable is it that the Holy Spirit is no less than the one God who is capable of being blasphemed against? The Holy Spirit is not just any being, nor is He just any spirit, but He is the divine being of God Himself. But He's not just divine being. Some would say that the Holy Spirit is God. Yes, He's God, but He is one manifestation of God. They would say that God is not self-existent in three persons, but God manifests Himself in three different persons. This is heresy, and any church that teaches it, you should flee immediately and encourage others to do so. The Holy Spirit is not one manifestation of the one God, but He is the third person of the one God. To show this, we can look To Jesus, the Son of God's baptism in Matthew 3. When Jesus was baptized, you know the story. Immediately He went up from the water and the heavens were opened and He saw the Spirit of God descending on Him like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is My Son with whom I am well pleased. And then the Son of God was led up by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Here we have God the Son being baptized with God the Spirit while God the Father declares His pleasure. Not as separate manifestations of the one God, but as three distinct persons of the one triune God. 
Later in Matthew's gospel, as he closes it out in 28, you all know Jesus's final command to his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of God, the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Christians are to be baptized not three times in three names, but one time in one name. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, this is indeed a mystery. The Holy Spirit Himself in His own God-breathed Scriptures teaches that He alone is the Lord and Giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is to be worshipped and glorified. The Holy Spirit is a personal, divine being, one with God the Father and God the Son, and yet distinct from them. So that's a very simple answer to who is the Holy Spirit. It's not really simple. But that's the answer to who is the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so, you know who the Holy Spirit is. The question now is set before us, who is the Holy Spirit for? After all, in the Old Covenant, we see the Holy Spirit descending on people like Joseph, People like Moses and Samson and David and Daniel. And in the New Covenant, we see the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus. We have these Old Testament realities combined with Western individualism. And that leads to a dangerous imbalance that has crept into the church. People will ask, have you had your own personal Pentecost? But the outpouring of God the Spirit at Pentecost was as unique a historical event as the incarnation of God the Son in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit is for individuals, yes, but He is not primarily for individuals. Most of you have been with us long enough to know that when the Bible says you, it doesn't mean what most of the Western church think it means. And Ezekiel here is no different. The individualized you is not how Ezekiel is using God's word. Rather, you is y'all. So let's reread Ezekiel with the proper Texan translation and see who God's promises are for. I will gather y'all from the nations. I will sprinkle clean water on y'all. Y'all will be clean from y'all's uncleanness. I will give y'all a new heart and a new spirit I will put in y'all and cause y'all to walk in my statutes and obey my laws. Why point this out? Is it that we believe the Holy Spirit isn't for the individual? No. But it's because God's promises are for God's church. And so the individual that claims these promises for himself and yet insists on living outside of the y'all of the church has no right to make such a claim. The Holy Spirit promised to those who are among God's people. 
That's what makes church discipline so net, so serious. You take someone and you remove them from the church, removing them from the ordinary presence of God's Holy Spirit. There are many individuals in the church today that claim to have the fulfillment of God's promised spirit in Ezekiel 36. But then that brings us to our third question. What does God say his spirit will do for these people? Well, he tells us in verse 25 and 26 of Ezekiel, he says, he will sprinkle clean water on y'all and clean you from your unrighteousness and from your idols. Do you hear it? God Himself will sprinkle you. He will baptize you. That's why your baptisms are effectual. Because it's God Himself baptizing you. He only uses men to administer baptism. These people are filthy and they are odious because of their sin. And for them to be clean, God Himself would have to clean them. How offensive is that? To the one who knows he's dirty, it's not offensive at all. But to the one who thinks he's clean, it's a great offense indeed. Adam knew God had to act to cover his shame. But God only covered it. He didn't cleanse it. In Noah's day, God did a cleansing. But it was a cleansing of the world in the flood, not a cleansing of Noah and his family. Moses and the people were sprinkled with water as they passed through the Red Sea, but that was only an external cleansing. Their hearts were still filled with idolatry, and their behavior at the foot of Mount Sinai only proved it. David had to ask to be cleansed from the sin of his sin. God's people were in need of a baptism to save them. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as a pledge to God of a cleansed consciousness. They needed to be cleansed from the inside out. And this is the cleansing that God promises in Ezekiel 36. It was this cleansing that Christ alluded to in the upper room. You know the story when Christ disrobes and he reminded Peter of something that he should have known from Ezekiel? Unless Jesus washed him, Peter could have no share with him. This cleansing wasn't to remind Peter that he needed clean feet. It was to remind Peter that he needed a cleansed heart. God promised to do that very thing in Ezekiel, to give his people a new heart and not just a new heart, but he was going to put his spirit within them. You see, God's people were dead. He says they have hearts of stone. Hearts that could only try their very best to live up to the law on the tablets of stone given by Moses. Their current hearts had no life in them. And so what did they need? They needed God Himself to give them a heart transplant in order that they might have new life. God says 
explicitly in verse 25 that he would be the one to sprinkle clean water on them. And in verse 26, he would be the one to give them a new heart. And it must be that way. And yet, if you remember, there was a teacher in Israel who did not know the very things that you're hearing today. Remember in John 3 when Jesus told Nicodemus that unless one is given new life from above, unless he's born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus responds and says, how in the world could a man be born again? How is it possible for a man to be given a new birth? Jesus responds straight out of Ezekiel 36. Words that Nicodemus should have known. Unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's what God's telling the Israelites here in Ezekiel. They were so far beyond human help that God Himself had to act. God Himself had to cleanse them. He was going to give them a new heart. He was going to put His Spirit within them. Dead men could not rise. Dead men cannot enter the kingdom of God. So God Himself had to come bring new life. They had to be cleansed. They had to be made new by the sprinkling of water and the Holy Spirit. Can dead bones live? Yes. And God shows them as much in Ezekiel 37. But they can only live by the power of the Holy Spirit. This was a truth that, and is a truth, that some Christians deny. Some Christians would say that the Holy Spirit responds to man's repentance. The Holy Spirit responds to man's sorrow or his prayers or his baptism. But that's not what God's Word says. God Himself, here in Ezekiel, among many other places, says that He alone is the active cleansing agent for a people who were more filthy than menstruation rags. He alone is the heart surgeon that gives life. He alone has the life-giving Spirit. All man brings to the table is filth and death. The Holy Spirit brings cleansing and life. And yet there are some who would affirm that they were granted by granted new life by the Holy Spirit in the beginning, but after that it's up to them to perfect themselves in the faith. God will get you started, but the rest is up to you if you really want to achieve blessedness. Wasn't that the approach our forefathers took? Adam Formed by God and filled with His breath, a recipient of grace, trusted his own wisdom to attain perfection. Noah, having graciously been delivered from the floods of judgment, became drunk and was defiled by his son, another recipient of God's grace. Abram, having been promised by God to be a father of many nations, trusted his own wisdom and thought he would help God by taking child-rearing into his own hands. Moses, having experienced God's provision in the spiritual food and drink, strikes the rock twice, as if God needed his efforts. 
The Israelites had been graciously delivered by the Spirit from Egypt. And yet they longed to go back to the yoke of slavery. David proclaimed God had knit him together in his mother's womb. David, who had been anointed by the Holy Spirit, promoted to king over all of Israel, tried to build a temple that he was unworthy to build. All of these are recipients of God's gracious covenant. All of them believed they were saved by grace. And yet, in their minds, this wasn't enough. And so they took matters into their own hands in order to get what they wanted. While the Holy Spirit of God forms order from chaos and brings life from death, God's people seem to repeatedly try to undo His creation. And yet here in Ezekiel 36, despite God's people's continued attempt at self-salvation, He promised to do something for them that they could not do for themselves. Save them by grace, but also transform them from the inside out. He says that He will save them by grace and He will cause them to grow in grace. The Holy Spirit, the The third person of the Trinity will come to indwell God's people in order that they walk in His statutes and obey His laws. This pattern of rescuing people from death only to see them respond not with joyful obedience but half-hearted disobedience would be no more. God would place His Spirit in them so that the Spirit's response to God would do something for men that men cannot do for themselves. It's God's Spirit that would bring transformation. It is God's Spirit that brings renewal. It is God's Spirit who brings life even to the believer. So if an individual claims to have the Spirit... But that individual is living life outside of the church and contrary to God's laws. What assurance can that person have that they are recipients of the Holy Spirit of God for God's holy people? None. But if you have been sprinkled clean, And if you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you, you will be be becoming more and more holy because that is the nature of the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you. His Spirit will be doing what He did at creation. He will be forming and filling you with life. And He will be doing it in the context of His church. What a great promise. For all those that... God promised to rescue and remake and reward and reconcile in Christ. For all those whom He promised to redeem in Christ, He would now rule over and in those same people by His Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is not a force that overpowers you from the outside or just one manifestation of God Himself But it is God within you. He is God within you, transforming you from the inside out. People get so focused on whether they have the gift of tongues or prophetic powers or discernment. And they use these as measuring sticks of their faith. 
But that's not what the Holy Spirit does. They are missing out on so much. They are missing out on so many of the actual promises that God gives in His Spirit. As you hear what the Holy Spirit does in the life of every believer, I want you to see if you recognize the work of the Spirit in your life. If you don't at all, or even if you don't see it to the degree that you would like, please come see one of your pastors and we would love to work through this with you. But if you do experience these realities, rejoice at God's work in you. He is keeping His promises to His people. Because God keeps His promises to pour out His Spirit, this Spirit of Sonship, you and I can cry, Abba, Father. Because His covenant love is patient and kind, so your love should be becoming more patient and kind. Because His covenant love does not envy or boast and is not arrogant or rude, so your love will cease to be those things. Because His covenant love doesn't insist on its own way. His covenant love is not irritable or resentful and does not rejoice in wrongdoing. If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, neither will yours. Rather, because His Spirit has birthed you from within, you will be formed by and filled with a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The Holy Spirit within us is there to form. He is there to fill God's people with love, joy, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God's Spirit is there to form us into the image of Jesus and fill us with the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. My prayer for you all is that you would set your minds on this Spirit, which is life and peace, for there is no other. And I pray you would do this for the glory of God And for your good, as you come to know this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God is yours and you are His. Pray with me. O God, the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, have mercy on us. When you first hovered over chaos, order came to birth. Beauty robed the world, fruitfulness sprang forth. Move, we pray, upon our disordered heart. Lift the mists and darkness of unbelief. Brighten our soul with the pure light of truth. Make it fragrant as the garden of paradise. Be our comforter, light, guide, and sanctifier. Take the things of Christ and show them to our soul. Through you, may we daily learn more of His love, grace, compassion, faithfulness, and beauty. Lead us to the cross and show us His wounds, the hateful nature of evil, and the defeat of Satan. Help us to find in His death the reality and immensity of His love. Open for us the wondrous volumes of truth. In His it is finished. 
Increase our faith in the clear knowledge, the atonement achieved, expiation completed, satisfaction made, guilt done away, our debt paid, our sins forgiven, our person redeemed, our soul saved, hell vanquished, heaven opened, and eternity made ours. Holy Spirit, deepen in us these saving lessons. Write them upon our heart that our walk would be sin-loathing, sin-fleeing, and Christ-loving. To the glory of His name. Amen. Amen.